Welcome to the Zoo Taxi Podcast, a series of twice-monthly conversations that center a unique LGBTQ voice in such areas as science, religion, culture, poetry, and current events. My name is Don Stouter, and I'll be your host for these explorations, sermons, editorials, and essays. For the record, the name Zoo Taxi comes from a license plate I saw one day, driving through the California high desert. I should also probably get this out of the way right up front. I'm originally from New Jersey, and so sometimes I say naughty words. Children should probably not be listening to my show. Meanwhile, sit back and enjoy the Zoo Taxi on the Anchor Podcast Network. Hey everybody, welcome to the program. Um, In this uh, episode, I want to share with you a sermon that I gave uh, earlier this year to the Unitarian Universalist Church of the Desert here in the Palm Springs area. It's a sermon that uh, means a lot to me. It's about um, um, the experiences I had living through the San Diego Cedar Fire in 2003. Uh, how that affected me and how it affected my family and how it, uh, how it was a bit of a parable, I think, for how we figure out what it is in life that's most important to us. I'd really like to hear your feedback about it, too. Uh, you can leave that feedback at uh, anchor.fm slash zootaxi. Um, if possible, uh, uh, sit still and listen uh, uh, to the whole episode. It's about 20 minutes long. I think that's how you'll get the full effect. And as I said, I'd really be interested to hear what you uh, have to think about it and how it affects you. So, uh, so sit back and give it a listen. I'm going to try the little voice memo thing on my phone. We're going to see how that works. Hopefully it won't like ring in the middle of the... I'll get a text from somebody. What are you doing, man? Let's go for a Bloody Mary. Um, I first want to give sort of a half, kind of a serious, but a half serious trigger warning. So I'm going to talk about some scary stuff. I'm going to talk about some experiences that you might have had. I'm going to talk some things that you might be very, very, very familiar with. The counselor in me wants to ask you to try to sit still in those feelings and just let them move through you. But the minister in me will remind you that if you need to leave the room, please do so. So it's 2003, it's October 25th, and it's my birthday. And at the time, I was living in Benita, which is a little community in uh, southeast San Diego County. Uh, My husband at the time and I had uh, a cool little house, but what made it really cool, it was a rental, what made it really cool was it had this indoor jacuzzi room along with a swimming pool. So it was like the perfect party house. And we were celebrating my birthday, and uh, a lot of people came, and and we were having a good time, and it, it moved. I, I, I think at the time we had changed over to daylight savings time, so it got dark a little, a little early, but the party still went on, indoor and outdoor. And I remember a very good friend of mine who was a social worker, actually an oncology social worker at Sharp Healthcare, where I worked at the time. She asked me aside. 
And she, she said, you know, I wanted to, I, I just wanted to say happy birthday, um, but I'm feeling like I'm having a panic attack, and I, and I don't know why. I can't explain it. And she said, so I'd like to go home, and would you walk me to my car? I parked, you know, about a half a block down from your house. And so we did that. And, and I had been inside most of the time, so I hadn't noticed this. But as we were walking, remember, this is San Diego. It felt like it was starting to snow. And, and, and I just couldn't, it didn't click. I didn't get it. There was this stuff falling out of the sky. It wasn't white. It was gray. And it turned out that it was ash, and, and, and nobody turned the news on yet, and, and, and it was early in the whole cycle of, about, of, of what was about to happen. But as the party ended, more and more people went out to their cars and were brushing ash off their windshields. Of course, we would wake up the next morning uh, uh, to the reality of what was uh, uh, of, of happening. We were in the early hours and early days of what would be one of the worst firestorms in California history. Um, some people uh, that morning had to wake up and make phone calls to reassure friends or, or check in with work. Some people had to pack and some people had to run. I'll give you the overall numbers just to give you a sense of, of, of what was happening in those days. Uh, there were actually three fires uh, in the end that were burning separately that partially came together. Frankly, had they come together, that fire would have gone all the way to the Pacific Ocean and taken everything in its way with it. The largest of the fires was the Cedar Fire. It burned 273,000 acres. There were 113 injuries, 14 deaths, 2,232 homes destroyed, 22 commercial properties, 566 other structures. The Paradise Fire, slightly smaller, was 56,700 acres, 24 injuries, two deaths, and 221 homes were destroyed. The Otai Fire, the one a little closer to where I lived, was 30,000 acres, there were no injuries, and there were no homes destroyed. That Sunday, probably by noon or so, <clears throat> my phone rang and my pager started going off, <clears throat> and it was Sharp Healthcare calling all of us into work, of course. I worked at Grossmont Hospital, uh, which is a part of Sharp Healthcare. That's in San Diego's East County, El Cajon, La Mesa, El Cajon. And when I got to work, we were already issuing everybody who walked through the door a mask because even our inner air-conditioned air was uh, uh, already of very poor quality, uh, already, already very hard to breathe. <clears throat> but what I remember uh, about being called in that morning was I parked my car in the parking structure. And I got out and I started to walk in, and the structure uh, uh, on its top level had this really quite ordinarily quite lovely view of San Diego County from East County almost all the way to the ocean. And what I remember most about that was seeing the sun through this hazy smoke. And I know some of you have seen this sight when the whole sky, the whole sky, turns completely blood red. <clears throat> it <clears throat> seemed surreal. It seemed like the world was coming to an end. It seemed like it was out of some weird movie. I remember seeing that and, and not being afraid. The afraid part would come later. 
<clears throat> everybody who worked in those days has, has stories to tell about what happened to them, about their personal experience, either, either losing a home or losing a loved one or knowing someone who did. At our hospital alone, 20 families lost homes or properties, including three of our chaplains. <clears throat> of course, our ER treated numerous minor injuries, um, um, but even though the physical injury was minor, the spiritual and emotional injury was enormous and would live on for a very, very long time. I remember one of my chaplains calling me. I was in my office. She was down in the emergency department. And, and, and I thought I was, I was speaking with someone who, who, who was either on some kind of, kind of narcotic or, 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 or was having a stroke or something. Her, her voice, she was, just, she was so in shock, even her as a chaplain, about what was going on around her, that she was calling me to ask permission to give a family food for their pets. And I thought to myself, you, A, she would never do that. And of course nobody needs my permission to help someone as the head chaplain. And, and so I just went to her. I went down to her in the emergency department and, 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 and she was just so overcome by what was going on around her that we had to sit her down and give her uh, uh, her own dose of emotional and spiritual care. The whole event would touch me really personally twice. The first time uh, uh, was when uh, one of my very, very dearest friends, a nursing supervisor who I'd worked with for years, called me to tell me that she was in a shelter because her entire home in Scripps Ranch, which is near Mira Mesa, had burnt absolutely to the ground. I mean, absolutely. A standing concrete chimney. That was about it. Scripps Ranch is a really nice neighborhood, and that fire came out of nowhere. Came over a hill. They'd never had any history of brush fires in that area. Came over a hill and took out a whole neighborhood just like that. The second way it hit me personally was the next day on Monday. Again, I was at work. Still, the fires were burning. By now, we had shelters opened at uh, Qualcomm Stadium and in other places. All of us who worked in healthcare were we're going between our hospitals and all these shelters trying to volunteer our time. My phone rang, it was my husband at home, and he said, honey, we're being evacuated, the fire's two miles away. And so I told everybody at work, I gotta go home, I mean, uh, we gotta get out. So uh, I went home, and, um, uh, um, and my husband Michael and I decided it was time to pack. And so we made a deal. We said, we're just gonna walk around the house separately, we're going to grab the things that we think are most important. We're going to put them on the dining room table because our dining room was adjacent to the garage door. We thought we'll back a car in. We'll load our car up as much as we can fit because the car wasn't that big. And then we'll get the hell out of here. We had a friend actually who had a boat down on Shelter Island. Our plan was to go join him down there. So stop the story now for a second. And, and, and think, close your eyes if you need to. If you had to go right now, if you had to go right now, what would you take? The tug. Well, we had to think about that very quickly, and so we 
ran through the house, but even as I was doing that, I recognized that there were some spiritual lessons in play. And I have to admit, God forbid, I have to admit that there was a part of me as I was doing this that thought, what about the Buddhist notion of impermanence? What about if I want everything to burn? What about if I want to start all over? What about if I don't want to put anything in the car? That only stayed with me for a minute <clears throat> as I was picking things up. But truly, how much have we all thought about what we would pack if we had to go quickly? What would be really, really important to us? Well, one of the things I discovered is, you know, everybody thinks about get your important papers, right? Your birth certificates or whatever, you know, the 16 years of bank statements you like to keep because you're a little anal. <clears throat> what I discovered is I'm walking around the house and I hadn't put all that stuff in one place. So... That made me a little crazy, but you can believe that right now, if you go to my house, there's two things that you'll find right off the bat. One's an accordion folder with every important paper. One is a little locked fireproof safe with the stuff that I absolutely don't want to burn. I can grab both of those and be out of the house in two seconds. Lesson learned. But by the time we ran through the house and gathered everything on the table, was all there ready to go, an alert came across the radio, a backfire had been started, it was successful, and that whole area of Bonita and Chula Vista had been saved. So everything I just said to you happened in the span of, I don't know, 25-ish minutes. But we indeed had finished putting everything on the table that we wanted to bring with us. And so after we got this, uh, it was one of those, you know, alert radio things that comes across your, your TV and your radio. After we heard that, we stood there. We just stood there by the dining room table. And we looked at it all. And I bet I could fit it all in these four chairs in the front here. That's how little we picked up. I remember thinking, geez, we could put way more than that in the car. But that's all that was really important to us. So we took all those papers I told you about, the papers you think are important. I had a little autograph collection, we took that. I had to take my laptop computer because I'm a nerd. I took some pictures, some plaques, some certificates, a couple art pieces, our cats and the cat food, of course. We didn't bring any clothes, but I had just bought a brand new tuxedo because we were gonna go on a cruise in a couple of weeks and I took that, you can believe that. We took digital cameras, we took our, our, our phones. At the time, we, we fiddled around with a couple of musical instruments, a dulcimer and a guitar, and that was it. That was it. We didn't bring any books, and I'm a kind of a book nut collector, and we didn't bring any books. Almost all collections of things we left behind. We didn't bring a single piece of furniture. Most clothes and linens we left behind all our kitchen stuff we left behind, and frankly, I would have been happy to see all that burn. <laughs> Almost everything in our garage, maintenance stuff we left behind. And I had a lot of journals. This is actually one, and, and I've journaled for years. But for some reason, I, I just thought as I was looking for stuff, that's the past. I don't need to take that. 
And so I left those behind too. There were some very personal things that I absolutely had to bring. Of course, there's some uh, 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 cards and letters. Uh, when I first graduated from my chaplain internship, uh, uh, my brothers got together and got me this Bible with my name on it. Uh, uh, this is show and tell, by the way. Um, and, and I have tended to use it to put important notes and cards and things like that in. Um, a lot of the cards that people had given me, I brought. Uh, I brought the framed photograph of my oldest brother's AIDS quilt. Um, and I brought a couple other things that I thought I, I just can't leave behind. One is this figurine of Peter Pan. My friend Richard gave me this before he died of AIDS. I was holding his hand when he died. And he gave me this a few days before that because he said, I don't ever want you to lose your childlike quality. And so Peter Pan had to come. Peter Pan, by the way, has been knocked over by my cats any number of times. You wouldn't be able to tell how many times he's been glued back together. <laughs> the other thing that I really wanted to bring was another friend who's gone gave me. And this is really interesting. It's going to look to you like a rosary. Except it's a rosary that's made out of the first AIDS medication. These are all AZT pills. And, and he, uh, uh, he wasn't particularly re uh, religious, so he couldn't bring himself to put a cross on the end of it. So he put this little piece of, uh, of leather that he handmade also. Inside the Bible, as I, was, <clears throat> uh, as I was getting it together to bring this morning, I also found two other things that I just constantly thank the universe that I didn't leave behind. One is a card from a, a minister who's now a Methodist minister. <clears throat> uh, she was a two-year intern with me at Sharp Healthcare. Uh, Don, I can't thank you enough for the years and moments of grace. I'll carry your lessons with me always, but especially carry your friendship. Thank you for the beautiful stole. Words cannot express my gratitude. I had given her, <clears throat> as a Methodist minister in a church that struggles with its acceptance of the LGBTQ community, even to this day, I gave her this exact stole. <clears throat> and as it turns out over the years, I've given a lot of people this exact stole because they, as ministers, wanted to find a way to send a message of inclusion in churches where they couldn't stand up and say it. The other thing that um, I'm really glad I found was a note. And I hadn't seen this in years, but somebody, I walked into work one day, and this, this note, this folded note, was under my door. <clears throat> and, it, and, and it was signed in a, in a way that I can't even read, but it said, hello. I'm not sure if you will remember me or not, but God knows I remember you. I met you at a very dark area in my life, and the words you shared with me eventually made my path clear. I appreciate your time and your connection with the universe, because when I needed you and the universe, you were both there. God bless you. And that made me think about all those times <clears throat> as a minister and a chaplain when I go home from doing 
my work at the end of the day, and I think that I haven't accomplished anything. I think I haven't touched anybody. I think I've just wasted my time all day. And then two or three or four weeks later, the letter will come, or the email will come, or the phone call will come saying, you made such a difference to me and my family in our life. Thank God you were there. And that, of course, just speaks to the pastoral care tool of presence that I can do and everybody can do. Because when we're in our worst moments, we just want our friend or our loved one there to hold our hand. I thought a lot about these things that we decided to take in the days that followed. And of course, in the days that followed the fire, there was all kinds of, of, of media blaming and there should have been a way to prevent this thing and, and, and our fire department didn't do a good enough job and they didn't have enough helicopters and they didn't do this and they didn't do that. And that's kind of why they call it a disaster because there's no real way to ever completely prepare for one. But for a lot of people, the fire ended up becoming a parable. What's the most important thing to us? Mostly, it was the things given to me or written to me by others. It was the times that meant history and relationship. And almost nothing else except my friends and family and my husband, Michael, really mattered. I would later leave Sharp Healthcare and join UCSD and work in the organ donation field, as a lot of you folks know. And years later, I would meet a woman who was a survivor of this fire. She and her whole family had jumped in the car to try to get out of the area around one of the casinos in North County. The fire overcame the road. Everyone in the car but her was killed. She was severely disfigured with burns. And she would come out and give community talks with me about the importance of organ and tissue donation because that's what saved her life and allowed her to go on with her life. And she would bring her new husband up on stage and she would bring her new baby up on stage and she would stand there still fairly disfigured and say, I'm one of the happiest people in the world. Those were the kinds of stories that came out of this scary, awful experience. But of course there were also stories of powerlessness. Lots of stories about powerlessness. I didn't get that so much, the whole concept of powerlessness, until I was widowed about five years ago. Because that was a whole journey in complete powerlessness. And of course I thought that that would be the end of my time in this world as a person who, who, who walked the journey with someone else. But, of course, fate had other plans. And this week, my husband Tim and I celebrated our second wedding anniversary. So on this Palm Sunday, in a week that calls to us to think about new beginnings, I want each and every one of you to go home, and I want you to mentally and emotionally and spiritually and physically gather the important things. I want you to study them. I want you to inventory them. I want you to think about why you chose them. And I want you to find ways to keep them from harm. I think you'll discover what I did. Your most prized possessions are about relationships with others. And relationships with others are about love. It turns out that St. Paul had it right 
When the sun turns blood red, either in the landscape of your heart or in the landscape around your home, as it is, these remain faith, hope, and love, the three of them. And the greatest of these is love. In your many holy names we pray. Amen. Hey, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed uh, that sermon. I, at the risk of sounding conceited, it's one of my favorites. I, I think its message of uh, of hope is uh, is universal in so many different experiences. So anyway, uh, I'm one of those people who thinks that poetry uh, comforts and heals. So just like the way they used to end CBS Sunday morning with a long meditative clip of something in nature, we end each of our episodes with an inspiring poet or poem. And again, as I did in my last episode, I'd like to share a poem from one of my very favorite poets, the late Mary Oliver. And the name of this poem is The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand who's moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who's grazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So that's our show for episode two. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at anchor.fm slash zootaxi, where you can make a contribution to help support the show or leave me an audio comment to play on the air. I'm also searchable on on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I tend to use social media as a blog as well as a forum to share my photography, which I hope you enjoy. Till next time, I'm Don Stouter, and this is Zoo Taxi, hosted by the Anchor Podcast Network. Be kind, be generous, forgive everyone, and love your neighbor. No exceptions. <laughs> <laughs>